Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. We're going to do this a little bit different this morning. Kids, we tell you just about every week that this time is for you. It's not just for mom and dad. It's not just for the grown-ups, but that God's word is for you. So this morning, uh, rather than us standing together and reading the scripture, we're going to read just a little bit uh, here in a bit. But we want to uh, talk about this passage for the kids. So let's go ahead and play that video. God promised Abram that he would bless him, promising to make him a blessing to all nations. Later, God promised Abram and Sarai that they would have as many children as there were specks of dust in the desert. But after many years, traveling through the land God had showed them, Abram and Sarai still had no children, and they were very old already. So Abram asked God if he was ever going to have children. God led Abram outside and told him to look up to heaven and count the stars if he could. He told Abram that this is how many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren he would have. Even though Abram and Sarai were very, very old, Abram believed God. God reminded Abram of his promise to inherit the land he was living in. And Abram asked God how he would know that God would keep his promise. So God gave Abram a strange-sounding job. It sounds strange to us, but to Abram, it sounded very normal, the way that people in his time would make important deals. God told Abram to bring him some different animals and birds. Abram cut the animals in half and laid the animals and birds in two different piles. Then Abram waited for God to tell him to walk between the pieces of animals. When someone did this, They promised that if they couldn't keep their end of the deal, they would have to pay the price and be cut into pieces just like this. That sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? Well, when the sun was setting and Abram fell asleep, a deep, scary darkness came over Abram. Then God spoke to him again. God told Abram that he would live a long time and that his grandchildren would be wanderers and servants for many years before they would receive this promised land. When the sun had set and it was dark, God's presence came down like a smoking fire pit and flaming torch. God came down and passed through the pieces right before Abram. Abram did nothing. God made the promise and God offered to pay the price of death. That's exactly what God did for us many years later. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for the sins of all his people. 
people who didn't keep their promises to love God, but still received God's love and grace because of Jesus. Just like Abram, we didn't have to do anything to receive God's promise, but believe in God that he always keeps his promises. your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, and I'll confess to you the difficulty that we face this morning, and that is there is not one but two of the greatest verses in all of Scripture in the passage we are looking at. So I'm going to do the best I can to keep this moving, because uh, there's so much to talk about. Look at the end of the chapter of Genesis 15 with me. Verse 18 says, On that day the Lord had made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Mennonites, the Hittites. The I, sorry, I was just, I threw the Mennonites in there because I couldn't say the other one. The Perizzites, Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. There's a, a very famous preacher from around the time of World War II named Henry, Henry Emerson Fosdick. He was the pastor of New York's Riverside Church, a mega church in its day, a church to which uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he escaped from Germany, uh, only to return later to lose his life there, he comes to America and has heard such glowing things of this man and his church that he says, I must go visit Fosdick's church, uh, and then leaves so disappointed because uh, Fosdick was actually part of the group that was underplaying and undermining the authority of Scripture. That the God's Word is not enough. We have to do other things to entice people to come. There must be other things. He's actually one of the fathers of the attractional church model, the mega church model that we see today, uh, which is more about the show and less about the Word. He gave a, a rather famous series of lectures on preaching. And one of his arguments, and we can agree with part of it, is that the preaching, the declaration of God's word should not be boring. That this is the greatest news ever proclaimed. It should not be boring. But here's what he said. No one comes to church wondering whatever happened to the Jebusites. Well, what he was saying was this history that we have here is not important. Stop talking about that. His... Those who would come after him would also say, well, stop talking less about sin because that just hurts people's feelings. Talk about their felt needs, the things that are going on around them. Tell them how good they are and how good they could be if they would just work together. I would say to us, no one comes to church wondering what happened to the Jebusites. That's exactly why we're here. Now, maybe not for the history, but something happened to them. Something happened to these other people, and here's what happened. God destroyed them and took their land away and gave it to Abraham and his descendants. We are here to ask the question, why? How did this happen? Abram, up to this point in the story, has basically been following God's GPS, if we want to put it in modern terminology. He's not necessarily a Christian. We know that because we're going to see it happen in this passage, and it's the first time we've seen it in Scripture, that he's reckoned, he's declared righteous before God. Before this, he's just been somebody who's been following God's 
instructions. God has led him from Ur, the town that he grew up in, to a town called Haran, down to Canaan, where he shows up in Canaan, the promised land, just in time for a famine. So he says, well, this can't be it. So he keeps going all the way to Egypt, because that sounded better, and then back to Canaan when Egypt didn't work out. And now he's shown up in Canaan just in time for a war. Right? This is bad luck Abraham here. He's, he's not necessarily been following out of faithfulness to God, but I think like many in our world and the church today, he has been doing, this is one of the fill in the blanks for you, he has only been doing what he thought was best for himself. Not what God said was best and therefore it is best, but what he thought was best for himself, even at the expense of his own family. Here's where we see this lived out in the church today. People who are part of it and yet not part of it. It, You know they're not part of it because what ends up happening is they say, if I disagree with what God says, what the Bible says, what the pastor says, what the church says, I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm going to go my own way. And they usually cap it off with some statement of, because I believe... out of their great wisdom, right, of having lived 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, as opposed to the eternal, unchanging word of the eternal, unchanging God, they say, well, I believe, and what I believe stands over and in judgment of the word of God. Here's what we see in verse 1. Abram's going to ask questions. Abram's going to have doubts. Abram's actually going to ask for a sign in the midst of this. And God is going to point to himself as the answer. Look at verse 1 with me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Notice the word fear that God begins with. This is the, throughout scripture, it is the universal response to the true presence of the Lord. Not joy, not dancing, not celebration. Fear. In the Old Testament, we see it with Adam. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. Our our sin is exposed before the living God. Our unrighteousness is exposed before the righteous one. Moses says that he hid his face and was full of fear and trembling. Job says, dread came upon me and trembling. We see it in the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel as well. We see it in the the last Old Testament example, which actually we read in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1 is the angel Gabriel comes to the young virgin Mary. And the first thing he must say to her is, fear not. There is a righteous, holy fear that happens when we come into the presence of God. And yet we we would say sort of flippantly, but yes, we live in the New Testament. We don't fear God. We periodically hear people say this. We don't fear God. What we mean is we respect him. We honor him. And there's truth to that. We do respect God. We do honor God. But in the New Testament, Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, in Matthew 10, 28. Hebrews 10, 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And in the Revelation, John sees an angel, not God himself, he sees an angel. And when he saw him, he says in Revelation 1, verse 17, he fell at his feet as though dead. 
All of this is going to lead the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 29, to say, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Oh yes, there is righteousness in Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ. And yet God is still holy and unchanged. A consuming fire. God's promise to Abram and to all believers who would come after is that God himself is your shield. What must we do to shield ourselves from the righteousness of this holy God? The answer is God himself. Oh, this is beautiful. What saves us from the wrath of God? It's God himself in Christ. He is our defender. Deuteronomy 32.4 says he's our refuge and stronghold. We find that in Psalm 18, but we find it throughout the Psalms. And he says to Abram, God himself is your reward. Not these things. Things come and go, and to be honest, you can't take them with you. But Abram is still not quite seeing that. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? He's still thinking of, of temporal things, things that you can see and touch and handle. For I continue childless. The heir to my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household is my heir. God says, I am your great reward. I am your shield. I am your provider. I am your protector. And Abram says, but I don't have any kids. How could you possibly give me anything? When we read back, we remember in Genesis 12 that God has promised that he would bless him and make him a great nation, that his descendants would possess this very land in which Abram stands. And yet he still has no child. Because of their age, Abram, Sarai, it was inconceivable, see what I did there, that they would have a child. Even worse, now it gets worse than this, Abram has a daily reminder of just how bad things are. Because his name, Abram, means, anybody know? Father. Abram, I will make you not only a father to a family that you don't yet have, but a father of nations. And every single morning when he gets up and has coffee with his wife, I don't know if they had coffee back then, right? God was still good. They could have had coffee. And she said, good morning, Abram. Good morning, father. He's reminded, I am not a father. Maybe God will not keep his promise. Oh, friends, how many times do we have daily reminders of things that we see again and again and for a moment, we are tempted to believe maybe God will not keep his promise. Maybe it's not going to happen. And God, in chapter 17, is going to change the name of the man who still has no children from father to father of multitudes. That's what Abraham means, father of multitudes. And yet he still doesn't have a kid. So he looks at God and says, what will you give me? What can you give me? What good is it if you give me something that I cannot pass on to the family? I can't preserve for history a legacy. It has to continue past me or it doesn't mean anything. The best I've got is Eliezer. He's my most trusted servant. He's, in essence, his household management. And by the way, this was a big household. This household does not like, like, look like yours or mine. We know that because two weeks ago, we read in Genesis 14 that when Lot is taken, his nephew, 
Verse 14 says, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit. Now, I don't know how well you're doing. Like, God bless you. I hope you're doing good. I guarantee you don't have 318 servants born into your house who you have personally trained for war. This guy's living on a different tax bracket than us. Are you, are you with me? But that's not enough. Even though there's that kind of blessing in his life, he says it's not enough. Eliezer is the most trusted person that I have on the planet, but that's not enough. Look at God's response in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Friends, notice God's response. Notice he gives no explanation whatsoever, even though that's kind of what we want in our lives. God, this doesn't make any sense. It's as if we're reading into this saying, the best thing that could happen for Abram, because he can't figure out what's really going on, was God just needs to sit down with him and explain it to him. Well, here's, here's how it's going to happen. Here's how you're going to conceive. Here's how this child is going to have a child of his own, and then all the descendants that will come, and God gives him none of that. Friends, often God gives us none of that. A couple weeks ago, we were out of town and staying in Michigan. We looked for a church to go and visit. And I think I'm probably a giant creep when it comes to finding a church to go and visit. I spent as much time as we did in the church doing research about the churches in the area. What's their statement of faith? What does their church look like? What do they do in this? One of them, and I'm like, oh, this looks pretty good. And I was going to show it to uh, everybody who was with us, say, let's go here. And then the last thing was, okay, if, if you want to, totally optional, you can sign up, and you had to sign up online, and then after the service, uh, they would take you into a private room, and some pastors and elders and other people uh, would give you a prophecy or cast a demon out of you if you needed it. Now, does God speak into our world today? Nod your head, say yes. Right? Is God still supernaturally in charge over every demon in hell and on the earth? Say yes. Yes, God does these things. Do you have to sign up online to make that happen? And by the way, here's the thing. If it's actually God, the king of the universe, who's going to say something, we should break the internet signing up for it. Yes, I don't want to miss it. In fact, I'm not coming in for the sermon. I'm just sitting in there. Right? Come on. If it's actually God speaking to you, we should stop everything and do that. Here's the thing, friends. This is God speaking to us. That's why we do this every week. We put all of our hope on the Word of God. God has promised Abram in the past, no, it's going to be a son. Not somebody else. Now, Abram still hasn't got this. He's going to get part of it. This gives me so much hope and encouragement. Because he's still going to try and do it his own way. And yet God looks at his broken understanding and effort and goes, Righteous. Oh, that's good news for us. God doesn't say, this is how I'm going to do it. God says, step outside. Look up to the heavens. By the way, that's not bad advice. 
in the midst of our most difficult moments, another fill in the blank for you, but when we are in the middle of darkness and hardship and we can't see any way out of it, we can't see any way that God could bring good from this, take a step back and look up. Look to the God who made all things. Look to the God who sustains all things, including you. Right now, God is holding the molecules of your body together. Right now, he is giving you strength, breath by breath. Don't remember how great you are, how much potential you have. Remember who God is. And then God gets sarcastic. Oh, for somebody like me, this is gold in the scripture. God says, look to the heavens, count the stars, if you can. We can't. Like, you, you literally, you can't go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like, you can't, I'm going to keep my finger on it so I don't lose my place. Right? Come on, we've done that before, right? Counting stuff. We can't see with the naked eye all the stars that God has made. Not only are we not able to count them, we can't even see them. This is reminiscent of God rebuking Job. Job 38, Job 39, Job 40, where God essentially says, all right, questions guy. All right, guy who has all these questions on how this is supposed to work and why haven't you done it my way? Here's his response. Dress yourself for action like a man, and I'm going to question you since you know so much. You tell me. Oh, <laughs> Friends, let's not stand in that place before God. He says, no, just look to the stars. The stars that you can't fully count, the stars that you can't fully see, and remember who I am. Remember who made those stars. By the way, that's, if I can do that with the stars, I can do that with your descendants. That's what it's going to look like, even if it doesn't make sense to you. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26 says, Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He brings out the starry hosts one by one. He calls forth each one of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Friends, how will things work in your life? Because of his great power and mighty strength. Is it because you understand how all the pieces fit together? Absolutely not. Most of the time, I don't get it. I don't see it. It's his great power and mighty strength. I love uh, Dr. Moeller in commenting on this. It says, Abram asked for a sign, but he's given a promise. This is the climax of all of Abram's life and story that we've been reading up to right here in verse 6. Look at it in your own Bible. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him righteousness. Dr. Steve Lawson commenting on this verse says this is the most important verse in all of the Old Testament. It is the hinge upon which all the rest of scripture will turn. Here it is. It's the question that begs asking how was Abram saved? How was every Old Testament saint saved? Well the answer we find here is not by obedience, it's not by works, it's not by circumcision or sacrifice. Those things were still yet to come. We find here the first demonstration of salvation by faith alone. He did nothing. 
Salvation is believing that God will be faithful to his promise. That Christ is able to save, that God is able to save all those that he has promised. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. How was it that Abram was saved? How was it every Old Testament saint was saved? By believing that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. At which point you ask the question, wait a minute, how can they do that? Because Jesus is not going to be born for about another 2,000 years after Abraham. How is it possible that they would have faith in that which they did not know that which was yet to come. Dr. Moeller is so helpful on this. They did it by believing that God would be faithful to promises he had not yet made clear. Even without the full picture, they believed it. Friends, you need to hear that one more time because you have things in your life, circumstances in your life, difficulties in your life that are not yet made clear. In those moments, you have a temptation, just like the rest of us, to say, I'm going to need to figure this out for myself. I don't know if God will keep his promises. They did it by believing that God would be faithful to promises he had not yet made clear. Answers they didn't understand and couldn't understand. Even without the full picture, they believed it. This was the gospel. This isn't just a promise that God made to Abram. This is the gospel. It's the doctrine of salvation and faith alone that would so captivate a German monk based on this verse and a couple others named Martin Luther in the 1500s that he would set the church on fire of salvation through faith alone. Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 tells us, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And by grace, Abram believed it. Look at verse 7. This is God's answer. Not here's how it's going to work. He said to him, I am the Lord. I've done it in the past. I'm sovereign over all things. I hold your future. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. All right, how are we going to make sense of this? We need a little historical context. Uh, Number one, all of these animals that he's going to mention here are going to show up in the Levitical system that's coming about 500 years later. Moses is going to give the law, give all of God's commands on sacrifice, on dealing with sin, on drawing near to God. But that's about 500 years out. Moses, uh, when he writes this, uh, is writing to people who understood Abram is in a different category. Here's the second thing, and the thing that really would have resonated with Abram is this is how you sealed a deal 
in that day. Rather than what we do, which is uh, we, we go for the thing that we want and we negotiate it, and then, in fact, we have a, a saying today, and then we sign on the dotted line, right? That, that's how we know that we have entered into this contract, entered into this covenant. Well, in Abram's time, the two parties would make an oath to each other. They would exchange some sort of token to remember the vows that they had made. Then they would sacrifice to God and symbolically would walk down the aisles of blood saying, if I don't live up to my end of this covenant, may I be cut just like these animals. It's really interesting. We just had a wedding yesterday. Every wedding that you have been to, there's an exchange of vows. There's an exchange of tokens, usually rings, as a constant reminder of the vows that they had made. There's almost always a cutting of the cake, which symbolizes the sacrifice that's cut. And there's almost always, I don't know how many outdoor weddings I've done, they find a way to walk the aisle. Like this covenant imagery is still rich in our culture today. But here was the warning that was attached to it. If I don't live up to my end, may I be cut off. I put this in the bulletin for you. This is the first Sunday morning where we're assigning homework. And I want you to actually do it. Now, for some of you, I want you to do a word study on this, may I be cut off in Scripture. And some of you are going, I can't do that because I don't have a whole shelf full of theological books behind me to look this stuff up in. So God has graciously given you, in common grace, the Google machine. Right? So get on your computer, get onto something like Google, and type in, I actually gave you the phrase to type in, Bible, so you're, you're pointing it towards the Scripture, may I be cut off, and then just look at a few of those. Look at a few of them and see all of the references in Scripture of people making a vow and then what it meant to be cut off. Start seeing the echo of who that was going to be ultimately pointing to. We're going to talk about that a lot more in the midweek podcast, Lord willing. Uh, last week, Dad and I recorded the midweek podcast, and then we went to upload it, and we had beautiful, beautiful video. It, two very attractive men, I, I thought, and absolutely no sound, no audio to go with it. So rather than giving you the silent movie, we didn't have it. This week, Lord willing, uh, we'll be doing that. But, but look at it and look at what it means to be cut off. All right, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. You see this echo of fear here again. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers, he's talking about death, in peace. You should be buried in a good old age. All right, kids, I've got a question for you. Actually, i got a few questions for you. Uh, shout them out if you know the answer. Who wrote the book of Genesis? God is, that's a correct answer. I'm going to give you an A on that one. Uh, there was an actual person that God used to write it down. We've said it a few times. Anybody remember? Moses. Exactly right. Who was Moses writing to? Children of Israel. Yeah, excellent. So we have Moses who's writing the book of Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
And he's writing to the children of Israel, not necessarily to us, although we're recipients of it. He's writing to the children of Israel. Now, this is super important. They were coming from someplace, and they were going someplace. Does anybody know where they had come from, the Exodus, and where they were going? Egypt. What, what had they done in Egypt? Somebody tell me. They were slaves. Is that a, is that a good job or a bad job? Bad God promised that was going to happen for 400 years, right? So Moses is, is writing this down, but he's, he's saying this to the children of Israel who've just come out of Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years, and where were they going? To the promised land. We have the best stinking kids at this church. Mm-mm-mm. They're going to the promised land. Now, now think about this for a second. He's telling them this story of Abram, but in that story, he says, by the way, here's one of the things that God said when he promised this land would be yours. He said you were going to live in bondage and captivity for 400 years. Now we read that and we go, we lump all of the children of Israel together and it's really easy to go, yeah, oh yeah, he said you're going to be slaves. Ah, but you're going to be delivered. But it was 400 years. That meant right from the beginning, God's plan for them to inherit the promised land included suffering. It included everything that they had just gone through. And Moses looks at them and says, this was not a mistake. God did this on purpose. Oh, again, that's easy for us to hear with the children of Israel, isn't it? 400 years, friends. Consider. That is generations who were born into slavery and suffering in Egypt, who toiled and suffered all of their lives and died without ever seeing the promise fulfilled. God, where are you? How is it possible that if you are truly God that you would leave me in this position? That was their state for their entire life, and they died. At some point they had a child who was born into slavery and suffered and lived their entire life and died and that person had a child and was born into slavery at some point after a few generations we say i don't think god is keeping his promise come on church are you with me it doesn't take us 400 years it takes us about four minutes to say god what happened to your promise if you were good there's no way that you would allow this to come into my life but i, I want to just suggest part of this is because of a really really dangerous thing that we have said in the church and here it is God loves you, individual, and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, come on, church. Does God love us? Yeah, does God have a wonderful plan for our life? Yes, as long as when we say that, we also include things like suffering and cancer and car accidents. Because our God is good all the time, no matter what it looks like. His plan for us is not just happiness. He's the God in charge of all things, in control of all things, good in all things, even in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Lord willing, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the midweek podcast. Here we're going to see just one, one facet. It, our, our problem is we think if someone would just explain it to us, if God would just explain it to me, I could understand the whole thing. But there are so many moving parts to what God is doing that we don't get it. Here's one facet. Look at verse 16. 
And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? Here's one reason. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, wait a minute. I thought this was about God giving a promised land to his people. I thought this was about God blessing his people. It is, and at the same time, God says, the people that already live there, the Amorites, have sinned against me, have rebelled against me, but that sin is not full yet. And when it is, then I'm going to visit all of my wrath, all of my judgment upon them. I'm going to destroy them, take their land, and give it to you. Man, doesn't sound like a good promise. You ever had somebody sin against you, and you thought, God, when are you going to make this right? Oh, friends, take Comfort, here it is. In only four to five hundred short years, God is going to sort this thing out. And that's the promise here. When Abram says this, it's going to be five hundred years until we see the fulfillment and the promised land is given to Abram's descendants. We can't even fathom all that God is doing. Even when we only get a glimpse, when it takes a little bit of time, we lose Hope, but listen to Habakkuk 2, verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. All right, we're running out of time here. We've come to the second of the most important verses that are in this passage. Uh, R.C. Sproul was asked by a seminary student, what is his life verse? And he kind of laughed and said, in my day, we didn't have life verses. But he thought for a second. He said, I'd probably have to say Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. And the seminary student said, okay, thank you very much, and went away. And he came back the next day and says, I don't get it. Let's see how you do. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Ah, so clear. Let's read the rest. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, all those other people. What was Sproul getting at? Now, I love when the guy came back. R.C. Sproul was such a down-to-earth guy. He's like, I don't know, maybe I told you the wrong verse. And so he looks it up. He's like, nope, that that was the right verse. Remember this idea of covenant, where the two men would would make an agreement on something, and so they would make vows, they'd exchange these tokens, they would offer a sacrifice, cut the pieces in half, and then together they would walk down the middle of these pieces. If I don't live up to my end of this covenant agreement, may I be cut off just as these animals have been cut off. What happens here? Abram readies the sacrifice, and then he sits on the sideline doing nothing while God does what? God does all the work. God passes through the aisle by himself. Normally, both would vow. Both would say, may I be cut off. In this instance, God alone walks. This should make your brain hurt if you really think about it. The eternal, unchanging God says, if I don't keep my covenant, if I don't keep my end of the bargain with you, may I be cut off. That's unimaginable. 
May, may I no longer be God and king of the universe. That's unimaginable. He cannot change. The, the immutability is actually part of his nature and character. But it's even worse than that as far as our brains go and even greater than that as far as our salvation goes because God passes in this covenant alone. In effect, he, he decrees not only if I don't live up to my end of the bargain, may I be cut off. He says, if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, I will be cut off. Rather than two walking alone assuming responsibility, God himself assumes responsibility for both parties. I will pay the penalty for your unfaithfulness. This covenant is not about you, it's about me. You're not in this because you've earned it or deserve it, because you were good enough. You're here because I chose you. You're here because I paid for you. I walk through the sacrifice alone. The sovereign God was making a unilateral covenant. I have promised and I will do it. That's exactly what happened. His people were unfaithful. You and I, friends, are unfaithful, but how has God responded? Isaiah 53, who has considered that he was, speaking of Christ, cut off from the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. When they sinned, God was punished. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, for by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is the gospel in Abraham. This is the best news you've ever heard in the Old Testament. That in your life, when we can't see all the pieces fit together, we trust in God, we believe in God, and God credits it as righteousness to our account. And then when we can't live up to it, God says, I'm going to carry all of it myself. The gospel of your salvation, that just like Abram, the call to you is believe it. That's it. Believe it. This is why every single Sunday as we end our service together, we come to the table of the Lord. It is, it is a sign, it is a seal, it is a token of this sacrifice, of Christ himself as the lamb who was slain for us. A finished sacrifice where we have been invited and we have been adopted. Oh, but friends, we do not walk the aisle of our own righteousness, saying, all right, God, here I am. I'm coming to your table. We walk the aisle of his righteousness. As he has declared, it is finished. It is done. Come. The Apostle Paul would say that we proclaim, we preach in our eating, in our drinking together, that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. His sacrifice has fully paid for my debt. And even when I can't see the full picture yet, here's what we say as believers. I believe it. He has saved me. I put this in the bulletin because I think some of you need to uh, uh, write this on a piece of paper and stick it on your mirror where you brush your teeth every single morning. Be reminded, He has saved me. He will keep me. He always keeps His promises. When you are tempted to doubt and disbelief, he has saved you. If you belong to Christ, if he has made you his own, if you are submitted and surrendered to him, 
You can say this with confidence. If not, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. He has saved me. He will keep me. He always keeps his promises. Church, I'm not asking you. I'm not inviting you. I am commanding you. Believe it. Because Scripture commands you. Believe it. Grab your bullet and let's confess together. Let's stand. Worship team, if you'd come on up. The Apostles' Creed is something that is used week after week in a lot of churches that are a bit more traditional than ours. Um, And it can be where you fall into a tradition and you just sort of say the words, you go through the motions. Friends, this is a declaration of the gospel of our salvation. I want us to confess it as if we believe it. Come on. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of our sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This verse we read in Genesis 15, verse 16, only has four words in it. It actually says, Abraham said, Amen, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, reckoned righteous. His response to God was to say, Amen, I believe it. I don't understand it. I don't know how it's going to work. But God, I choose to believe whatever difficulty, whatever impossibility you are walking through, God always keeps his promises, friends. And his promise is not that everything's going to work out perfectly for you because this world is filled with heartache and disappointment and I wrote those words a day before heartache and disappointment struck our community his promise is that his plan stands Proverbs 19 21 his promise is that he is good and that everything that comes to us must pass through his gracious hand Job chapter 2 verse 10 His promise is that he will bless his people, maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations. Forgiving our iniquity, our transgression, and our sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Genesis, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And so when we don't see the end of the story, we say whatever God ordains is right. Whatever God allows to come into my life, I will trust him. I will believe in him because he always keeps his promises. Friends, let's sing that together. Let's believe that together. Let's come to the table of the Lord. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. 
If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.